I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It is Monday, which means, yes, it is time for the front three podcast first one in a while guys adam boltwood here alongside the one and only chris hennish good evening and of course nico Myers is here too how you doing adam very well it has been a while dear listeners as i said at the top of the show uh, we can only apologize for that uh, we sort of took an international break of our own last week um but we are back now guys we've all been incredibly busy um i myself have been working on the exo youtube channel which you may have seen taking up 99.9 percent of my time i think it's fair to say the other 0.1 percent taken up by ball street and the other non-existent amount of time i have left has been taken up with planning a wedding so yeah it's, it's weird weddings do actually take up a lot of time when is the big day the big day is thankfully a long way away um which gives us plenty of time to plan and not be stressed. Uh, the venue we wanted in the beautiful Emerald Island Island uh, wasn't actually available until July next year. So, yeah, plenty of time. Plenty of time for her to change her mind. <laughs> well, hopefully not that. But, but yes, the venue is booked, uh, which is which is a weight off the mind. Just the, uh, yeah, all the other stuff. But um, what about you, Chris? What have you been up to? Fill the listeners in. Nothing as grandiose as an Irish wedding. Um, just working on stuff that I can't really talk about them in, to be honest. It's Ooh, all um, secret projects. It's all stuff. Yeah, it's all stuff that'll, that'll come out soon, but nothing I can talk about, unfortunately. It'll be revealed soon enough, then. That's the plan. That's definitely the plan. Ooh, very interesting. Uh, what about you, Nico? What are you doing? See, my my things aren't as cool as you guys. Like I'm, I'm just I'm just doing stuff. <laughs> uh, I picked up a Nintendo Switch recently, so that's now that's been cool. So. Uh, Zelda, are you playing Zelda? Everyone seems to be about Zelda. I Mario. finished Zelda today. Wow. And I finished Mario, uh, Super Mario Odyssey, like three days ago. Wow. So, How many days did it take you to yeah. complete these games? Oh man, I I shouldn't have been playing them as much as I I did, <laughs> um, at least consecutively. But you man, them they too were fun. Quickly? Yeah. yeah <laughs> I finished them far too quickly. Yeah. What's the one everyone's gone mad for? Uh, Fortnite. Have you played that one? Well, yeah, I well, I traded in. This is the deal. I traded in my PS4 for the Nintendo Switch. Whoa! So I am no longer playing any Fortnite, Whoa. but instead playing Zelda and and uh, Mario. But I heard Fortnite is coming to the Nintendo Switch, so maybe I'll be playing that again as well. <laughs> if you don't understand, that is a bold move to switch your PS4 for the, what? What? what well, he, so that? here's. I'll I'll run you I'll run you through the the, yeah. the thought process really quickly. So I between work, school, writing, doing all this other. stuff, stuff um mm. every time i got home i live with my parents as well just to help out with my brother and stuff mm-hmm. um every time i got home it was just super late and you know i didn't want to wake them up with my loud yelling at, at Fortnite because i'm very <laughs> bad uh so i was like you know what nintendo switch you can play it in your car you can play it anywhere you can pretty much have it on the go screen. so i uh i decided to pick one up and and i haven't regretted it folks so if you okay, market for Nintendo, go do it you can hear chris typing that's him ordering one on amazon right now 
uh, just in case you were wondering. Uh, guys, we should move on to the football. We've got three talking points to discuss. Uh, we're talking the Champions League, of course, previewing this week's big quarterfinal fixtures. We're also talking Zlatan Ibrahimovic, a little-known Swede who made his debut for LA Galaxy this weekend. And, of course, we start with Tottenham, Chelsea, a historic win for the mighty Spurs. That is right. Spurs beat Chelsea at Stamford Bridge for the first time in 28 years, I believe. Three uh, one win in the end from Richard Pochettino's side. It was all about one man and one man only, Nico Delhi Alley. Yeah, I mean, I think both from an attacking perspective, I think both teams created a lot of chances. There was a you know the expected goals turned out to be in Tottenham's favor, but not too you know, a large extent. But I think tactically, the, the, what you're talking about there is is the switch that Pochettino made. And more prominently, a, a lot of the conversation coming out of this game is, is Deli Alley, obviously, because he scored the, the brace. And a lot of people talking about how maybe he hasn't been having the best season. That's not something I particularly agree with, mostly because I think the the thing and Mike Goodman summarized it really well on his podcast earlier this week where he said, you know, Deli Alley has had a change in role as opposed to uh, a slump in form. And I think that's the most important thing to underline is that he's gone from scoring a lot of goals in a Tottenham team and a Tottenham system that demanded a, that from him to being a more connective player in the final third and holding things together in that sense. And, you know, without Harry Kane for the majority of the match, Deli Alley was able to to kind of fill that role and exploit the worst part of uh, of Chelsea, which is sort of their marking within that within those central three defensive players, and when when Spurs have played Chelsea over the past couple of seasons, we've seen that time and time again. It's been a aerial ball not necessarily over the top like the first goal was, but it's been an aerial ball with Deli Alley in mind. And, and time and time again, he's he's been there um, to sort of punish them for that. And those are the kind of attributes that he excels at. But I, like I said, the thing I think we need to underline is that Deli Alley really hasn't had that bad of a season. He's just had a difference in sort of a role change in, mm. in the Tottenham team. And it's always good to see that when he goes back to the more goal-scoring role without... Harry Kane and the team that he can still do that. I think it's really interesting. I think Deli Ali has had a very interesting season as someone who's sort of, you know, been to, to most of the home games this season at Wembley. He has been an occasionally frustrating figure. I, I think I agree with you in the sense that, yes, that change in role has meant that uh, I think he's been less decisive. He's been less eye-catching in grabbing the goals, grabbing the assists. And I wouldn't necessarily agree that he had a slump in form. I see what you're saying in that sense. I think he's been less consistent, though. But as you say, that will have to do with the the sort of evolving role he's had in this team. It was fantastic to see him, though, be more decisive in this game. Two fantastic goals. The, his first one, especially. The way he plucked that ball out of the air from Eric Dyer, that finish. Absolutely incredible. And the tenacity show for the third goal, ultimately the winner, um, was a, a fantastic as well. His first double in the Premier League since January 2017, also against Chelsea, of course. What do you make of Deli Alley's sort of form of his, uh, not struggles this season, Chris, but his story this season? I mean, he was obviously left on the bench in the previous England game. Richie Pochettino himself has said it's been a tough period for the player. He's one of those players who, it's almost like his level of performance was so high last season, so high previously for Spurs, that that's what he's being judged against, those high standards he's set himself. When we sort of forget he's only 21 years old. Yeah, I think we forget that sometimes. It's something that Chris Hutton once said that always stuck with me of, uh, of Andy Carroll, that you know he's going to have good days and bad days, and it's important that we manage both. I think that's true of, of Deli Ali that he had such a, a precocious rise from... MK Dons to Tottenham that because of that it meant that there was going to be some kind of rough seas he couldn't just keep improving all the time um, and I think even then you know with England at the minute he's in I would say in, in competition with Jesse Lingard because they they thrive in the same position even though they are very different players and and now the question is being asked well can you accommodate both do you maybe put one of them out wide and if so which one etc etc I, th- I think for all the talk of him, him dropping off, I mean, he still scored in the, the Real Madrid game at, at White Hart Lane. He still produced yesterday against Chelsea. I do think he is a man for the big occasion. Um, I just think that for, for Tottenham in general, this, is, this has been a season where they've been tested in different ways to previous years. I think, for example, Hugo Lloris, I don't think has been as consistent 
um, as previous years. And so this is the growth period. This is when the development really happens. I don't think it actually accelerates itself nearly as much when everything is going right. It's when you're tested and, and have to decide how to respond. Um, and I think for, for Ali in particular, you look at his first goal specifically, I think um, I saw some places describe it as a pun, which I thought was really harsh because I think that's a great pass from Eric Dyer. And it's actually not something I readily associate with Eric Dyer. I didn't didn't and or don't think his passing is, is that great, specifically from from range. Um, but that it's a great touchdown to bring it sort of out the sky and then a first time finish with not a second to spare. That's kind of what I think Ali is best at as as floating ahead of the forward um, and, and operating in the space around them. So, yeah, I think for me it's it's great for him, but it's also great for Spurs because actually they didn't need Harry Kane, if you think about it. Um, as great as it was to have him on, and, you know, it's great news that his injury is not as serious as, as first thought, both from a Tottenham perspective and an England perspective. But really, neither, you know, I, I would say... Spurs definitely didn't need him against Chelsea. Mm. They, they seemed to cope just fine and, and seemed to be coping with Son in that forward role. No, I was hugely impressed. I was usually surprised at how, not easy Spurs found it, but how comfortable the victory was in the end. Obviously, Harry Kane is uh, our most important player and to go to Chelsea, a team which, as we've said, uh, they've not managed to win at in 28 years and, and perform in that manner was, was incredibly significant, I think. Uh, in terms of Chelsea, though, Nico, um, Obviously, another disappointing day, as I've mentioned before. Eight points now behind Spurs. Looks like they're not going to be securing Champions League football this season. Looks like Antonio Conte is going to be leaving at the end of the season as well. Reports that he could be off to PSG. Uh, he certainly won't be at Stamford Bridge um, if reports are to be believed. Where do you think Chelsea go from here? They're obviously a club who changed their manager consistently. Uh, there's an inconsistency in that sense. But do you think now this could be a blessing in disguise? From last time, of course, they didn't qualify for the Champions League. They went on to win the Premier League. Is there another cycle, another manager, another season or period of success to come for this club? Or do you think things could be taken a, a more difficult turn? Yeah, I mean, I actually I kind of think that this this is this is according to plan for Chelsea. Um, they don't operate at the same level of business that a lot of the rest or the rest of the top six do with the exclusion of Tottenham. And they, I think they have an entirely different plan. So they compete in terms of trophies and performance with the Manchester cities, the Manchester United's and, you know, et cetera of the world, but they don't have the same finances behind them anymore. And Roman Abramovich's uh, investment isn't, it isn't to the same extent as those, as those teams. So they have to operate differently. And I think this more wayward style of, we'll win the league one year with Jose Mourinho and then finish 12th and then we'll win the league the next year and have a very sort of wayward type of performance from one year to the next is what they are going to do for the foreseeable future because what that paves the way for is, and I've said this before on the podcast, is that they have a consistent and secure squad of stars like Aiden Hazard and Willian and, and, and Golo Kante and guys maybe in Christensen now that they're not going to sell but that have a very specific type of football that they thrive within and that's counterattacking football so I think you know they win the league one year with Antonio Conte he doesn't do so well the next year maybe not to the to the level that they expect of him they get a new coach, which is probably the easiest fix out of all these things because it's one man as opposed to like maybe five or even more players. And then they just get another manager that can implement a similar think, style of football I that mean, they know this squad can can do well performing in. Feel uh, free to correct me, okay, but it feels like there's just there could be quite a significant rebuilding job on that new manager's hands. Of course. Uh, there's a lot of factors which are yet to be determined, but you know I've heard Chelsea fans talk about how they want to sell Morata this summer. He could perform much better under a new manager. There's talk of Eden Hazard, of course, leaving. There's players like David Luiz. There's players like Cesc Fabregas who could be on their way out. It feels like, although, yes, they do bring in a new manager regularly, Chelsea, and they seem to be able to, to find their way back to success, it feels like this time there's not necessarily the foundations that are there for, for Conte's successor. I still think there are pretty solid players that they can kind of bank a, a, like I said, a defensive style of football upon. They have Andreas Christensen that is, you know, really comfortable with the ball, but at the same time a really good defender. They have a slew of 
you know, other defenders that are really good. I think that if Marcus Alonso, someone like Marcus Alonso were to go in the summer, they have Palmieri in, in replacement already. The real key for me, I think that kind of determines Chelsea's future in terms of rebuilding is whether Aiden Hazard decides to, to, to go or, you know, to stay. And I think in that case, then they're in real trouble because not only does that get rid of probably what most would call Chelsea's best player, but, you know, it also kind of might lead the way for other star players like an Angola Conte, like Morata or other guys like that to, to leave as well. And I think in that case, um, yeah, they'd have a major kind of difficulty rebuilding because obviously they finished outside of the top four. There's no Champions League football. And like I said, they operate on a sort of different financial spectrum than the rest of the top four or top six rather. So I think it kind of hinges on Hazard and whether he stays or, or goes. Talk to you about uh, Fabregas, Nico, because he's one of the players that we, we, we mentioned there earlier. He is someone who's not particularly popular with Chelsea fans now. It seems that he might be coming to the end of his time at Stamford Bridge. Do you think he performed in this game or showed any signs that maybe he could be, uh, could be of worth to the Blues? I mean, I think it's a difficult position for both him and, and kind of Antonio Conte because the situation that he was in last season where he contributed sort of sparingly, I mean, sparingly would, would be, I think would be a little bit disrespectful because he was a major part of their title run. But I think the ability that he had to come off the bench and not necessarily start every game because of the way Chelsea played, like they played defensive football, they could counter upon teams. And if they needed to crack a tough defense or if they needed that exceptional, you know, final third passing, then they had one of the best passers that we've ever seen in the Premier League in Cesc Fabregas to come off the bench or start the game if it was always going to be like that to do those things. And now that he sort of justified his place and demanded that he plays, because um, I remember watching an interview with him and uh, sort of about his evolution as a player under Antonio Conte. Um, I think it was either, either done by BBC or something like that. But they, um, he was talking about how at first when Antonio Conte came in, everybody said you know he was going to be on his way out and he was not the type of player to succeed under him. And he was sort of proud of himself. And Antonio Conte equally was proud of him as a player as to how hard he had worked to you know, prove the manager wrong and, and have a different opinion of him. But now I think they're kind of caught in this halfway house where they feel like they have to play Fabregas because of his his exceptional performance um, in the offensive third. But he is sort of a weakness defensively because they have to be either the completely defensive countering team where they play a midfield duo of Bakayoko and N'Golo Kante and they can just counter upon you and win the ball in the middle of the, of the field through tackling and pressing and stuff like that. Or they're the team that's going to dominate possession and have everything run through Cesc Fabregas. So they're in this halfway house between playing a player that's a defensive liability or playing one of the best on-ball players that they have. So for me, it's it's I think it's a really difficult position that Conte's in considering he doesn't want to drop the player because that would mean a negative relationship between him and uh, Fabregas, who he needs, and you know needing to play him so you know it, it was an it's interesting and it'll it'll be interesting to see how it pans out um or even if Antonio Conte stays and how, how that'll resolve itself talk to me a little bit Nico about uh Mauricio Porcino's tactics in this game uh didn't have much success in the first half pretty sort of cagey affair but Christian Eriksen got that goal at the end of the first 45 minutes which seems to buoy Spurs in that second half he sort of changes around that front four seemingly Son moving over to the right potentially to take advantage of uh, Alonso's lack of pace Eriksen coming more centrally where he seemed to be more effective in that first half uh Lamella sort of assuming that sort of spearhead of the attack and alley on the left which is of course where he made that run from for the second goal the crucial goal for Spurs yeah, I mean, I think it's all connective. Like I was saying earlier about Deli Alli's role, he is a connective player between all of those guys. And when you can get Christian Eriksen, Eriksen central, you open up a lot more possibility for his passing. And that's exactly what we saw on, I believe it was the second goal, or it was sort of a scramble, and then Deli Alli knocked it in, is that he was able to make that pass to an on-running fullback. And he can do that on both sides of the pitch if you have him central. If you just have him to one side, then the, you know, although it might be concentrated to, let's say, maybe a weak side, you know, initially you said... He was on the left, so Victor Moses would have been targeted. You still have a more duality of possibility if you have someone like Erickson that's central. And then obviously, you know, without Harry Kane in the team, you need your scoring threat threats as far forward as possible. So Son, Ali, all, and even Lamella all need to be sort of forward. And that all was connected by both Ali and Erickson. I think, I think they did a fantastic job doing that. Let's get back to Spurs then. 
because that's the bit we all want to talk about. Uh, how significant is this win, Chris, do you think, for Spurs? Obviously, as I said, eight points now ahead of Chelsea, uh, looking good for a top-four finish. They've got a game in hand over Liverpool, for example, who they're only two points behind, only four points behind Manchester United, who are second uh, and in these final seven games now. Uh, their hardest challenge is going to be Manchester City at Wembley. Uh, they're in form. They've got their key, key players back, like Harry Kane, which we just spoke of. To qualify for the Champions League for what will be a third consecutive season going into the new stadium, of course, uh, the new White Hart Lane, how significant is that for Spurs? I mean, we spoke many years ago on the front three about how Spurs just didn't have the mentality to, to compete. This sort of game where they're changing history, where they're changing uh, the mentality around the club would seem to suggest that you know Spurs have evolved under Pochettino and can compete with the biggest clubs in the Premier League. It does mean a lot because I think what it does is it will guarantee the consistency of the Champions League, which is important for Spurs. The thing I find so bizarre, curious, fascinating, whichever adjective you want to apply, is Spurs are the only team that have so many conditions to the achievements that they make. So people say, oh, well, they need to win something. Um, if they're going to advance to the next level. But then they kind of supplement that with, yeah, but the FA Cup isn't an achievement. And and I just think if you haven't won a trophy in a while, for the most part, any domestic trophy is an achievement. I don't think there can be, um, you know, uh, uh, not objections or, or stipulations, rather, if you will, all placed on that. And I think that's so true of Spurs that, yes, for them, the FA Cup, given what they've got left in this season, that would be a fantastic thing to win. Um, if only because I think it may alleviate some of the pressure on the team to to walk away with something. But even still, they took Juventus really far. And I think they're, they're learning a lot. Obviously, the Alderweireld situation isn't ideal. But again, I think that's what makes me think that Spurs can at least exert some kind of consistency over their situation because they've handled that quite similarly to the way they're handling, or they handled, excuse me, Kyle Walker, which was not to bend to player power, to essentially place themselves as as the the strongest negotiator in the position in the situation. And I think, yeah, if Alderweireld goes, I feel confident they'll find a replacement. And I think that's why results like the Chelsea one are important because they're mm. another cornerstone of the consistency that Spurs have needed to establish themselves as a big club. Because, again, say they win the, the, the FA Cup, the League Cup or whatever, they could win the Premier League even. Leicester didn't suddenly become a huge top four club because they won the Premier League. Yes, you know, it was a wonderful thing. We all cheered it. But it didn't change how we saw them in the context of English football. And I'm not sure if winning the Premier League would suddenly change Spurs. They have to establish a consistency of being in the Champions League and attracting better players first, because I think that is essential to them sticking within the financial um, constraints with which they've chosen to operate by. Mm, certainly. And obviously the stadium is a, uh, another sign of that progress in a, in a, in a larger context. But I agree, I think Spurs have shown progress over, over the past couple of seasons, not only challenging for the title, um, as you say, sort of going toe-to-toe Juventus in the Champions League, now changing the history of you know records like this that existed at Stamford Bridge. I think they're all hugely positive and hugely encouraging signs of progress for Spurs. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if Pochettino and this team can go to the next level in the FA Cup semi-final against Manchester United in a couple of weeks' time. I think that would be a fantastic trophy to win. Spurs fans would love to win that trophy for the first time since, what, 1991. I think it would be uh, a real marker of the success for Spurs. And, you know, it's the sort of thing that is important for Spurs to build on going into next season in that new stadium. And hopefully, once again, being at the top end of the Premier League and hopefully sort of challenging... uh, Challenging for the title, essentially. Um, but a fantastic win for Spurs. Uh, another disappointing one for Chelsea. Uh, looks like Spurs are going to finish in the top four. Let us know what you think, guys, on Twitter at the front three. Um, let's move on to talk about the Champions League, guys. Some big Champions League ties coming. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This week. Guys, let's move on to talk about the Champions League. Some huge quarterfinal first leg fixtures coming up this week. Uh, None bigger than. Nico, Liverpool versus Manchester City. When we previewed it a few weeks ago, we were talking about how Liverpool were the favourites. Are you still of that opinion? Yeah, I think so. Like I said a few weeks ago, I think the tie really kind of hinges on Benjamin Mendy's fitness and whether Manchester City can play the formation that they need to play in order to beat Liverpool. Because as I talked about before, I think that the key here is when you play a 3-5-2 versus a 4-3-3, you just have different options in terms of your ball progression. And that's kind of where Liverpool were able to smash Manchester City in their you know, emphatic win over them in the league, is that they were able to occupy the middle of the pitch and force City to play through them and not around them. And if City can't play a 3-5-2 or something similar to that, where you have two high wing backs and then enough personnel in both defense and midfield in order to overload the pressing structure of Liverpool, then I really only see a a win for Liverpool there. So I think unless Pep Guardiola does something magnificent and I think him playing, um, him essentially not playing a left back against Everton at the weekend is confirmation that he's kind of seeing which of the two left backs, either Fabian Delph or uh, Benjamin Mendy, he can play in, in, in the Champions League tie later this week um, because I'm assuming he didn't want a, ch- uh, a chance at either of them getting injured. Um, so I think it'll it'll really come down to that and, and kind of what happens in the first leg. So, But I am still of the opinion that if City can't do that, then Liverpool will probably go through. If City can, however, then I think the tie is probably theirs. Mm. I mean, last time these two teams met, of course, in the league, uh, Liverpool ending City's unbeaten run with a 4-3 win at Anfield. That was in January. Chris, were you expecting a similar goal fest? How do you see this one playing out? Yeah, I I think Nico makes some really good points. I think if I look at it from a Liverpool perspective, I think the best way to mess with City is to disrupt their rhythm. That's kind of when... I've seen City at their worst, if you will. But I think, yeah, I think this one definitely has goals in it, undeniably. Um, I don't think it'll be as one-sided as the 5-0, just because I think the red card made that such an anomaly of a result. Um, but yeah, I can definitely see this being an entertaining one. It's going to be thrilling. It is going to be thrilling. Is there a score prediction from your point of view, Nico? Ah, that's so difficult. I think for the first one, it's... It's it, yeah, you're putting me on the spot here. Um, it's so difficult to call because, like I said, it, it is dependent on who plays. I think, I think if Mendy plays, then it'll probably be like two one to Manchester City. If Mendy doesn't play and City don't get to enact that game plan, then I imagine it'll be like two nil Liverpool or something like that. Okay, uh, Chris, what about you? I'm gonna go three two. 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 I know, I was trying to give myself a second reaction to think. <laughs> Three, two, two. <laughs> Liverpool. <laughs> I'm going to go two all. I think it's going to be two all. I think it's going to be a really interesting game. Really looking forward to that one. But it's not the only huge game, obviously, in midweek. Nico, we've also got Juventus versus Real Madrid. Uh, Juventus, of course, uh, beating Spurs in that previous round. Uh, do you think they've got enough to beat Real Madrid, who, albeit the champions, uh, the reigning champions in the Champions League, haven't had the greatest season so far, although they're showing signs now they could be back to their best. Yeah, I mean, they, they are, I think, in the driving seat now in Serie A, so that title is probably theirs once again to a historic seventh time, I think. Um, and they did pretty well in, in against Spurs, obviously, in the second leg. But it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out because I think both teams here are kind of looking to have maybe 
I don't want to call it the lesser hand, but that's kind of what it is. I think Real Madrid are more than comfortable being the more counterattacking team. We saw in the second leg against PSG, they played a 4-2-2-2 with Ronaldo and, 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 um, and Asensio at the front and a mix of players in the middle. And that was solely down to the fact that they could be the team off the ball and press PSG you know, in pressure and then counter on them. I think against Juventus, especially in the first leg, it's not going to be as cut and dry for them because obviously they don't have the, the advantage of having played a leg. Um, but at the same time, I, it'll be interesting to see how both managers look to have that advantage because I think that's kind of the dream... That's kind of the dream setup for Real Madrid. That's the approach that they want to have. And at the same time, while Juventus aren't the, the same defensive team that they once were, they will probably not necessarily want to dominate the ball against Real Madrid because of the powers that they have on the counterattack. So uh, it's difficult to pick a, a winner in this one, but I'd be interested to hear what, what you and Chris have to say about it. Hmm. Chris, what are you saying? I think this is an interesting one for me because... You would argue that Real Madrid have got the more recent receipt against Juventus. And yet, the last team to knock Real Madrid out of the competition were Juventus. So, there's a slight, I would say, advantage to Juventus across a two-leg. Because I think that's so much easier to manage than one 90-minute game where you have to win. Um, I think, you know, you look at that game against Spurs and I think... Going into the second leg, there was a lot of people, self-included, who thought this is definitely in Spurs' hands. Whereas Juventus kind of wrestled it out of them and managed the game much better. Um, and I think because of that, I'm certainly not expecting them to beat Real Madrid. Largely because they have so many players missing. Bonatti is missing. Um, Pjanic in the middle has yellow card accumulation as well. There's talk Chiellini had to leave the Italy squad, which... Again, not ideal. Um, he's still a great defender. I mean, he says Ramos is the best defender in the world, which I think is funny. Um, but I think I give it to Real Madrid in this first leg just because of those facts, because it's a hamstring Juventus or a Juventus wrestling with some injuries and such like, rather than because I think there's a huge gulf in class. Hmm. It's interesting. I think Real Madrid scored something like 10 or 11 goals in their last three league games. Um, that was obviously after they impressed in the in the tie against PSG. I think they show what they're about there. So I think I'm going to give it to Real Madrid. You know, I think they're going to maybe a 2-0 win, something like that against Juventus. I think even though they knocked out Spurs, Spurs not exposed them um, at Juventus, but they showed that there are those defensive weaknesses you speak of, Nico. What's your score prediction going into this one? I think... I think Real will win the first leg, and I think in that case, since they have some of their better players back, Merlin Pjanic will come back, Medi Benatia will come back, and he's a large part of them playing out of the back and, and really progressing the ball forward quickly to someone like Gonzalo Wayne. I, I think they'll probably take it in the second leg, and I want to go. I want to go at least for the first leg. Real Madrid will win, and then hopefully Juventus will come through in the entire tie. Mm. Um, okay, let's talk about Barcelona, Roma. Then, obviously, one of the other big ties this week. Any chance of a shock, Chris? Do you think in this game? No, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> these two, <laughs> these two met in the group stages in I think 2015, 2016. And it was a draw in Rome, and then a fairly comfortable win at the new Camp, if I remember right. And I can kind of see a similar thing here. I think you look at um, the last round with, with Chelsea, Barcelona went to Stamford Bridge, and yeah, they were poor, essentially. I mean, they were, actually, I take that back, they weren't so much poor as they were stifled. Um, and I think... When they took them back to the new camp, you saw more of their quality, and I think this will probably follow a, a similar trajectory. Any thoughts on this one, Nico? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the last couple of ties that we've been previewing, kind of been talking about the dynamic of the two teams and which one will be the on ball team and which one will be the off ball team and who will look to counter. And I. I really don't think that's relevant in this tie. If Barcelona dominate the ball, they'll probably beat Roma. If Barcelona don't dominate the ball and they get to play counterattacking football against Roma or at least pressing football against Roma, then they'll probably win the tie to an even greater extent. So I, I really don't see much of a chance because I don't think really Roma are that good. So I'm going to go Barcelona. 
Barcelona it is, yeah. Hard to see Barcelona, uh, especially with Messi in the form he's in. Obviously, came off the bench uh, to to save uh, Barcelona somewhat um, against Sevilla. Uh, speaking of which, there in their own Champions League tie this week, of course, were Bayern Munich. Uh, I saw them at Old Trafford against Manchester United. Of course, they knocked out in the previous round, Chris. Uh, they were very impressive there. But do you think maybe Bayern are a different challenge for Sevilla and maybe have too much? Or is there a chance that they could come through this one? I think the thing is, these teams are a polar opposite in terms of experience. The last time I think Sevilla got to this stage was like 50, I think it was 58. Um, and you look at Bayern and, and only Real Madrid have been to more quarterfinals than than them um, in the entire competition. So for, for me, I think it's one of those situations where I have immense admiration for the plucky underdog. And I think Sevilla showed that they can play that off-ball role that, that Nico referenced before there and, and counter-attack quite well because their midfield is set up to exploit the space very well. I mean, Klopp talks about the fact that, you know, a counter-press is, is is better than anything a, a playmaker can summon um, or words to that effect. And I think you look at the Sevilla in the last round, the way they exploited Man United's space, particularly for... I think it was the first goal where Benega just takes two, both Matic and Pogba out of the game with one pass. I, I just, I look at Bayern and I think they're so much more of a ruthless outfit. Um, I say that because, yeah, they, they beat Besiktas 5-0, that's that's all well and good, but that tie, that game specifically, and you can argue the tie was done once Vida gets sent off after the 12th minute. What impressed me so much more about Bayern was the fact they went to Turkey knowing there was pride at stake and got the job done and got it done, I would say, fairly convincingly. Um, Heinkis obviously has a good association with this competition. Uh, he won't want to lose it. I think they're in a good position domestically. The Champions League would be a lovely complement to that. Um, and I just think that for Sevilla, as good as they are, as sort of plucky as they are, if you will, I don't see the quality in them to, to take on a team like Bayern, especially if Besiktas struggled. Do you agree with that, Nico? This is Bayern's tie. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for as much as for as much respect as we can have for Sevilla, Bayern are a side with immense quality, and a lot of people have spoken about the recovery job that they've done this year in the Bundesliga. And it's not just because the Bundesliga is quote you know a dead league or anything like that, or there isn't any competition, but there are some immensely talented players and a really talented and experienced coach, especially in this competition, Jupp Heynckes. So I think with the powers that be, you know, Kingsley Coleman. James Rodriguez, Aryan Robin, and Frank Ribery, even in his old age, it's difficult to see past that quality when it comes to this stage in the competition, regardless of the fact that, you know, Sevilla, Sevilla will likely get to play how they want to play um, b- because Bayern are just so good. So I, I think it's there, there won't be too many upsets in this, this year's Champions League, but we could be wrong. Chris, you put much stock in the theory that Bayern Munich, their domestic lack of competition means that they are ill-prepared for the challenges of Europe. Obviously, this season, they're on their way to their sixth consecutive Bundesliga title. They beat Borussia Dortmund 6-0 at the weekend, one of the only clubs that have managed to challenge them in recent years. I mean, look at the last time they won this competition. Five years ago, when Jupp Henkers was last at the helm. Since then, Pep Guardiola, Carlo Ancelotti, they haven't been able to rediscover that European success, despite their domination of the German league. Well, it's, it's an interesting debate to have because you could argue to a certain extent the Premier League has the same problem because outside of the the top six rivals that Liverpool and Man City have, most weekends they'll go and play teams, especially in the bottom half, who will set up purely to defend. Their first intent is not to concede rather than to try and win the game. And, and I think there's certainly instances where you look at, I think it's a little bit more prevalent with Man City, where you look at them and they, they almost... They're not too sure what to do when they get punched. That's the best way I can put it. And for for Bayern in particular, yeah, there's definitely, I think, an issue with competition at the very top, top level at the Bundesliga because it is always Bayern in the same way it feels like it's always Juventus in Italy. The problem is, is that the competition underneath that, I think, is actually quite healthy. So the teams that essentially are going to step into the ring and try and knock Bayern off their perch... They're fairly interchangeable, whether it's RB Leipzig, whether it's Dortmund, I think it's Wolfsburg at one stage were doing quite well. 
you can kind of swap those those out as you please. But I do think, yeah, when you when you compare actually someone who is able to really challenge um, by it's difficult. I think Leipzig beat them fairly recently, I believe, if, if memory serves, if I'm not misremembering that. But it's it's more about the consistency across a season. You know, it's not terribly dissimilar to to City losing against Wigan in the cup. That that's not massively going to derail them. That's a one-off game. In the same way that these Bundesliga games that they occasionally lose feel like one-offs. Um, I think that could have been an interesting development in the season, even had Ancelotti said that maybe we could have seen someone start to to show something and and build off a off the back of that. But yeah, I th- I think the thing with Bayern is they have enough professionalism about them not to let it affect them too much. Because I think when they come to the latter stages, that's when they'll they'll raise their game a bit. And I think that's what kind of impresses me about Bayern and Heinkes is that for the most part, they know just the right level of pressure to put on the pedal mm. and, and just enough so that they, they kind of do what they need to do without ever actually kind of overexerting themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I actually wrote something to that to that um, to that idea about Manchester City a little while ago that you mm. know the lack of competition for them in the in the Premier League and really in within English football might hamper their Champions League aspirations and it was sort of exactly that idea because I had watched I think the weekend prior was Raul Batiste which is managed by Kike Setien who's a relatively tactically astute guy um, against Barcelona and in the first half. I mean, they were completely silenced by a, a really, really good Batiste high line and, and high pressing and sort of more of these complex tactical concepts that we talk about. And yet in the second half, I mean, they were dominated by Barcelona and it was because of a tactical change that they made. Manchester City, equal to, to Bayern Munich to some extent probably, aren't being challenged in that way you know, a lot. And you, while the the level of competition in those specific game situations might not be the same when a Wigan does it or, you know, someone else in, in the lower leagues who play them in the FA cup or the Carabao cup do it. It's still a similar type of, you know, game situation that they'll be experiencing. So it is good practice because the Bayern Munichs, the Sevillas, and now obviously the Liverpools in Manchester city's case will be doing it to them. They'll be high pressing them. They'll be holding a high line. They'll be, creating these high-pressure situations. So I think it is an interesting idea to kind of think about. But at the same time, I have to imagine that the professionals and the coaching staff at the club try to, to the best of their ability, create situations to where those players are going to be comfortable in those situations anyways. So I'm not 100% sure if it 100% holds water, but I think there is some degree of you know validation to that idea. One of the other big talking points this weekend, of course, is uh, uh, a little-known player called Zlatan Ibrahimovic making his debut, of course, for LA Galaxy this weekend. Yeah, he, he didn't get a huge amount of training time or, or even just time with the team. It was very um, much done at the at the last minute, if that's even possible, because it's been rumoured for an age, this deal. Um, so there really wasn't a massive amount of surprise when it was completed, but it did happen quickly at the same time. Um, I think with the actual game itself, it was a farce of a game. And so much as LAFC ran away with it in the first half, they were 3-0 up by halftime. Um, then in the the second period, actually, no, sorry, 2-0 up at halftime. Then they go 3-0 up. It quickly becomes 3-1. And he comes on in the 71st minute. By the 77th minute, it's 3-3. And he scored his first, which was... Uh, a ridiculous volley from some 35 yards out. And then towards the end, he picks up his second, the Galaxy's fourth, and, and they win the game 4-3. It's, it's a bit of a mad one. And, and at the same time, I think that goal flew around the internet at such a, a speed that it, it pretty much hit all of MLS's social media targets within um, one foul swoop. Now, that might sound a boring metric to equate the importance of goals, but I think the the other thing as well is is that it almost pushes the the poles of debate, if you will, further away from each other. Because um, on the one hand, you have people talking about Zlatan's brilliance. On the other hand, you have people saying that, well, isn't this a isn't this a, a great piece of evidence that the MLS is trash? That David Villa and Zlatan with one leg can can dominate so easily and so quickly. 
I find that opinion a bit boring, if I'm really honest. I think it, it's it's lazy, it's easy to grab for, and it, it tells me that either you don't want to watch the league or you've watched one or two games and you've acquitted an entire opinion off that experience, which, to be fair, the Premier League could throw up just as many awful football games that suggest it's bereft of any technical skill. I think really what it says about MLS is that they're starting to get the balance of designated players right because on the same field as Latan, you had Carlos Vela, who was coming into what you could argue is his prime years. You had Diego Rossi, who was much younger and still has to reach his prime. And then you have Zlatan, who is clearly winding down his career, but has enough quality in him to maintain a fairly high level. He will attract supporters. He will attract uh, attention to the league. I wouldn't say as much as Beckham, personally. I think Beckham was a bigger star. But the notion that this can be a, a home for retired players is, is so rapidly evaporating. Um, and I think it took a large step in that direction when Pirlo left because Pirlo wasn't good and fans said he wasn't good. No, no one made excuses for the fact that he couldn't handle with the pace of it. There was no other way to, to argue it. It was too fast, too fast for him, too aggressive for him. And he couldn't dictate in the same way that he was used to. And I think this is the ultimate thing for MLS is it's starting to find its identity as a league. Now it's not just 11 players running around the field, um, trying to, trying to connect passes. It's actually got some, nuance to it I think now and guys like Latan fit into that um, he could arguably fit into anywhere I think he's a very versatile player but I do think that the league's growing in a in a fairly positive direction with the caveat that yeah it needs to improve a lot of things first and and that's where I find the opinion of people who think that it's it's you know a useless league or whatever it's terror I just find that a bit boring because I think well what do you want them to do just stop playing football altogether is that the solution yeah, to be fair to LA FC, uh, it's only the second time in MLS history that the team has lost after being 3 0 up. I don't think it's necessarily a, a huge stick to knock the quality of the league with. It's obviously uh, an insane game, a sensational debut, of course, for Zlatan. Um, pretty high standards he's set himself in MLS already, Chris. Um, how do you expect him to perform over the course of the season? Obviously, now he's 36. He's shown that uh, that he can have an impact, but uh, MLS presents his own challenges with the travel rigors, etc. How do you expect him to to perform for LA Galaxy throughout the rest of the uh, the campaign? I think individually he'll do fine. I think he'll he'll score goals no problem. Um, double figures probably between twelve fifteen. He'll, he'll be fine. The worry is is if you're expecting him to contest MLS Cup, I think you're going to be disappointed because the the what that game showed is that Galaxy's defense is is awful. Like it really just LAFC did a great job attacking, and they're very well set up in the final third. But the Galaxy can't defend um, at the best of times. And I think you know if you want to expand it out wider, there's a certain I think truth to the fact that for Zlatan, a lot of his career has been right team wrong wrong time, and. In the case of LEFC, I think if he'd come a few years earlier, which he talked about wanting to come, I think, two or three years earlier, I think he might have won stuff. Um, he might not be about winning stuff. I mean, he's not on mad money. He's on $1.5 million a year, but he does get to live in LA, of course. And I, I do just think that for him, he's going to. there's only so much he can do, and I don't think he can mask the frailties of that team to get them to um, an MLS Cup when you look at like Toronto and Atlanta and these teams that that seem to to have a, an abundance of quality. Even NYCFC have started the season quite well and have depth and versatility. So the Galaxy just don't have that. And in a in a certain way, I would say that those goals, as as very good as they were, brilliant in the first one, you know, equally as as strong in the second. They they mask some of the the flaws of of Galaxy, and I think. Yeah, there's, there was a, a certain uh, misleading element to, to both of them. If not Galaxy then, I mean, uh, those three teams you mentioned, the sort of early favourites who are showing maybe while they're, why they're in contention to win the MLS Cup this season. Obviously, Toronto uh, won their first MLS Cup last season. Um, again, they look like the odds-on favourites, but Atlanta and NYCFC, the, the only teams that you can sort of see challenging them in that sense? Um. 
it's difficult because I, th- I think NYCFC have started really well. Columbus have, have started really well. Um, and they're not obviously a, a big market team, but they seem very well drilled. And they were in an MLS Cup fairly recently. So they're, they're not um, new to that territory. Um, the season itself, it's such a bizarre one because so often, like when Seattle won it in 2016, they were shocking by, I want to say, July. And then it just turned around. And as long as you get above the waterline, so to speak, into those playoff spots, you've got a chance. Um, I think for Toronto FC, things will probably change when they get rid of Champions League um, because then they've got less to focus on and less to worry about. And the notion of them winning Champions League would be huge for MLS. It's difficult to truly state what it would mean because it would not only uh, stop the dominance of Mexican teams, but it would arguably be uh, a shift in the the power struggle, if you will, that actually MLS clubs were not this ocean apart from their Mexican counterparts. Um, but that's still a, a big ask. <clears throat> Atlanta United have, have started well. Um, they've got some quality. They just don't have a very good holding midfielder. And that's the other problem. But yeah, I think I think I'll be very surprised if it's not an Eastern team this year. I think the East is stronger than the West. What do you make of this, or Nico uh, Zlatan saying for, for LA Galaxy, what this means maybe in a, in a wider sense for, for, for this side in MLS? From an outside, sort of an outside perspective on, on the whole thing, I think, you know, the thing that I've noticed now, I mean, I don't think it's a particularly revolutionary thing to notice, but is, you know, is that, L, you know, the LA Galaxy are, are, you know, interweaving themselves into the very history of the, you know, the MLS and, or MLS. And, you know, looking forward, you know, I, I, as someone that has more recently come into the Premier League and had to learn about the history, you know, secondhand from other people, they talk about clubs like Portsmouth and, and Leeds and these other historic sides that despite not necessarily being relevant within the Premier League, you know, are still mentioned and are still talked about with a degree of importance. And I think both with, obviously, Beckham playing for them and now Zlatan, two icons of two entirely different generations, I, I, I think it's LA Galaxy further cementing themselves as a very, as you know, part of the very fabric of, of American soccer and to further that MLS. And I think, you know, maybe 50 years down the line, hopefully when American soccer has continued to grow and continued to, to go on the path that it is now, at least in, in terms of growth and development, these are the kind of things that'll be remembered because of the icons that they've been able to make a part of their club. So him scoring two fantastic goals, especially the first one on his debut, only kind of speaks to that. Um, so yeah, that's my perspective from from sort of an outsider MLS type thing. Guys, so there you have it. Our free talking points from the weekend's action now. Tremendously exciting. I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, before we go, any other business from this weekend's Football from the world of the beautiful game. Nico, PSG have won the title, right? They've already won it. They have clinched the league and the title. And I, the only thing I put in the notes, maybe folks can get a, a behind-the-scenes look, is that, you know, only one week before City possibly also mathematically winning their league mm. have PSG clinched it. And yet we hear all this BS about how the Premier League is the greatest league in the world. But, you know, they're, it's done in April, folks. So and possibly even before that. So I mean, what does this mean for the Premier League? So you're saying I mean, the Premier League is great. only as good as Liga. That's what you're saying. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Two years ago, when you said Zlatan Ibrahimovic was just playing a bunch against a bunch of farmers, and <laughs> you mean, said I feel like this characterizes is what I said, goals, but fair enough. And then Dave didn't dye his hair. Yeah, all of this is equal <laughs> to that the Premier League. <laughs> right? As, would you would you agree with that, Chris? That this comparison that Nico's making is fair and just. Uh, I'm not looking to comment at this part, at this precise moment. <laughs> wow, what a what a politician you are! Um, I mean, what, what does this mean then for for PSG, uh, Nico? I mean, uh, Neymar obviously winning the league as well uh, in his, in his first season at the club. You can't say it's been a failure now, can it? I mean, even though it's all about the Champions League, we'll forget about that. 
<laughs> I mean, I think it it speaks to our expectation of of him as a player that we are debating, or not necessarily us solely, but some people are debating. You know, the I guess the legacy of his time at, at PSG within the first year, Com- and it's completely dependent on the Champions League. Like we don't need to, you know, nobody needs to dance around it. The only thing that teams outside of the Premier League really care about or the only thing that we judge those teams on and that's the Bayern Munichs the you know PSGs the Real Madrid and Barcelona's of the world is their performance in the Champions League and I think right now you can say he's done as best he can he's suffered a horrible injury that hopefully he'll be fit for the World Cup um, and I think he's done exceptionally well in Liga I think he's like 20 something goals so you know I think I think he did really well in his first year and I'm excited to see what he's going to do going forward. The comparison I make between Ligue 1 and all the other uh, European leagues and the Premier League is uh, when was the last time we had uh, a team who won consecutive league titles in the Premier League? When was the last time we had that? Uh, that'll be next year when Manchester City do it back to back. Apart from the future, apart from the future, what is the what is you know the last gonna, time an you know actual team? That? that guy that that guy that tweets me, he's got Manchester United tattooed on his forearm. He's he's gonna love that. He's wow. gonna be all up in my DM. I'm not a Man United fan, and even I struggled with that one. I got me up. I'm gonna guess Chelsea, isn't it? The last one was Manchester United, 2007. Am I right, sir? 2007, 2008. Uh, that was the last time back by Champions. Whereas, I mean, we mentioned earlier Bayern Munich, six in a row. Juventus uh, might not be on course for six in a row. But Juven- uh, no, Juventus are if they win this year, and it's looking like they might. That's no, seven. No I way. believe. Okay, there you go. Seven in a row. Uh, PSG, obviously, uh, it's not back to back titles for them. Five in a row. Would it be five in a row? No, no way. No, no, no. I'm saying, I'm saying, before they lost it last year, it yeah. was five in a row. That was the record. So th- that's the comparison you make between the two leagues, right? Even though, yes, this season the the league's over in April, um, we're all uh, we can all see that. But the, the difference would be the 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 challenge at the top of the table, the the difference in a different champion every single season. Is that not the comparison uh, to make? I guess, but I think, you know, we're not necessarily playing on a level playing field. The the economics in the Premier League are vastly different than that of the other leagues. And either give it a few years to for the Premier League to even out or give those leagues some time um, to even out financially as well. And we might see some similar things. So I don't know. I, I'm just I just wanted to make the point that the league is over. <laughs> it's It seems to me, though, like the, even the the teams themselves in some of these top European leagues don't, and, and the elite teams we're talking about here, don't value a league win in the same way that they would, say, a European win. For example, Unai Emery. He's winning the title, as you mentioned there, for PSG in April. Uh, a fantastic achievement, yet, uh, as if reported to be believed, and uh, as we all widely believe, he is going to be gone at the end of the season, potentially with Conte, or is Thomas Tuchel the latest name uh, linked with the potential PSG? Job? Thomas Tuchel supposedly, yeah, already a point. I'm not sure if that's official, but I think it is pretty widely known that that will be his successor. So it seems even the, the clubs themselves don't value a league win in the same way, no? Yeah, but, you know, it's still like Carlo Ancelotti, for example, was sacked because it looked like he wasn't going to be even close to winning. I mean, he was making it a difficulty for Bayern to be clear winners at the time that they expect to be clear winners. But I, I definitely get what you're saying. I, you know, it's a it's a difference in expectation with some of these guys. But like I said, I think that has a lot more to do with the financials because the wealth disparity in those leagues is vastly different. Because, you know, in the Premier League, you have, you know, maybe six clubs, five clubs that are on the same playing field economically, whereas in, in the other leagues, it's vastly different. Like Ibar, for example, who, you know, our great podcast guest, Ewan McTeer wrote a book about um, doesn't even expect to stay in the Spanish first division for a number of years. This is overperformance to the, you know, to the extreme. And they're just lucky to be here because of the financials and even their stadium cannot support a, a first division team for more than a couple of years. So it's that kind of, dis- there's, I, I don't think there's many teams in the Premier League that besides maybe Bournemouth that I've heard their stadium is like not Premier League quality or something like that um, is, is the same. So I think there is a lot of, disparity um between the clubs that is more the reason well guys there you have it uh that is the front three this week ending on a very tasty debate indeed uh we're going to be back on thursday of course to talk about all those wonderful quarterfinal fixtures some really exciting midweek ties until then chris 
Where can the whole, where can the listeners find you? At K-H-E-N-E-A-G-E. Expecting some news to drop of these secret projects. Can the listeners look forward to that this week? Maybe next week? Not this week, but in the coming weeks, I think. Such a tease. Uh, Nico? Um, You can find me at Nico underscore O Morales on Twitter. Lovely stuff, guys. You can find me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood, not gloating about the win over Chelsea at all. Uh, Until Thursday, have a great week, and we'll speak to you then. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.